Hey, Sales Lift Nation, it's your host, Tyler Lindley. Today, I have Ben Straup, the president and founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions on the podcast. Hey, Ben, how you doing today? Great, so glad to be here. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So today, we're gonna talk about this idea of building your organization and your company around the customer. But Ben, like, what does that really have to do with sales? That's a great question. I get that all the time. And I think most people's attitudes towards sales is you need to go be working on the next sale. We'll work on the corporate strategy. But I actually think having been a direct rep, having managed a team of sales reps and having been an executive in a large organization, one of the things that the higher you up, higher up you go inside an organization, the further you are away from what I call the tension in the marketplace. So actually, I think the people who are the most likely to give us the best qualitative and quantitative intelligence is the sales team. The problem is, is the organizations aren't engineered to extract that information out because every single day the sales team is interacting with the market, surfacing opportunities, dealing with objections, identifying friction, and also solving problems. And whatever happens in that sales process sets the expectation for the life of that customer uh, or client or constituent, depending on the context that you're in. And what happens in the sales process has a direct impact on lifetime value. Mm -hmm. So I think there isn't a more important part of the organization than sales and the sales team to help us extract that data so that we can make meaning from it. Yep. Love that. So it sounds like you think a lot of sales teams maybe are missing the mark here. They're not extracting that data. They're not that feedback loop is not happening where that all of that crucial information that the sales team's learning out there in the field and in those conversations with customers aren't making it back to the rest of the organization. How can you create that feedback loop so that communication and all of that valuable information is making it around the organization? It starts with a leadership commitment. What I've observed uh, quite often at the executive table is what I call confirmation bias. So people are incredibly successful. That's what leads them to the leadership table. But then they bring all of the things that made them successful to every single new situation that comes. And what they forget is that when they experienced that success, it was likely different context, scenario, assumptions, and realities. And they chose to make a different decision than their boss or their predecessor did that then found this newfound success. And so when we stop doing that, we assume that everything's out there. The easiest translation of that is the, the chief revenue officer says, well, if they just make more cold calls, we'd have more business, right? <laughs> it's just that one of those just things that I listen for in that process. The second thing is the sales manager has to see that. And the truth is that we've been promoting sales managers from great reps. And that doesn't mean that great account executives can't become great managers, but that is what I call crossing the great divide where you go from being a star individual performer to creating environments for other people to be successful. And that's a really hard transition that most people don't make very well. So what we do is we institutionalize really successful account executives, which are just about get it done, get it done. They're very process and results oriented people, which is what made them great as account executives. What we need in that sales management role, just like the executive role, is we need a curiosity that's baked into everything that's saying, what is the marketplace telling us? And that's where I think we have to shift some of the, the ways, the framework, we have to shift the scorecard and we really have to, uh, to shift what it is that we're trying to do. You and I both are in consultative sales environment. So it's all about 
problem discovery, solution design, and then really providing something that kind of connects the dots between current reality and preferred future. If we would equip and empower and incentivize our account executives to actually surface that and capture that Mm -hmm. in the sales process, and then use that information in aggregate to point to attributes and measures that would actually help us understand what the behavior is and intent, that gives us massive understanding on what's happening. Mm -hmm. Also, the sales manager, I think, needs to look at the database kind of like the old school direct marketers used to. They looked at them as each segment is a portfolio, if you will. And every portfolio has a different valuation target. And there are different contributing realities that lead to that valuation target. So at a base level, you've got new, growing, plateaued, declining. And so when we start to understand that persona then and, and apply personas to each of those database segments, it gives us a chance to flip out of bits and bytes and ones and zeros and dollars and cents and moved into more relational attributes that help us understand how are people engaging with us And then how are they responding to that engagement over time? And ask the question, what's more important, today's transaction or the lifetime value? So Mm. for instance, Starbucks knows that you're going to be a customer of theirs for probably 18 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. And over the 18 to 20 year period, you're going to spend $20,000. Now wrap your head around that, man. I absolutely love Starbucks. And it, it just pains me to think that I'm probably overspending. Like that's the average, right? I'm probably way overspending that, which makes me completely guilty. But Starbucks knew in year one that they could break even or even lose a little bit of money because they had a 20-year view. Mm. So they were enchanting and enrolling me into a 20-year relationship, not a one-year relationship. Mm-hmm. And so when we start to look at the customer not as merely a transaction, but that initial transaction is the beginning of a a relationship that drives lifetime value. We shift the conversation to what, how do we create value for the customer? And they help us create value by maximizing lifetime value return. I think that a lot of the executive team would say, how we've got to worry about the, this quarter, this month, (laughs) this week, we got to put something on the board. So it can be hard for them, I think, to see the forest for the trees and your analogy to see what is the big picture here? What are we trying to extract? Lifetime is way more important than what we can get today. How can you instill that kind of a mindset at the executive level and have it just bleed throughout the rest of the organization? Because I totally agree. The lifetime value is What's most important, it can be difficult when you've got short-term results that are needed. I need this by the end of this week or by the end of the month. How can you balance those two things, Ben? Absolutely. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I actually think it's a both and, not an either or. Mm. So we put it in a completely different context. We were having kids. We knew the second that our wives found out that they were pregnant, there were things that the doctor looked for at different intervals mm-hmm. that signaled things were on track or off track. And if they were off track, those were points that prompted intervention. And then when our kids were born, there were different milestones and metrics. And those are pretty well defined all the way up through 18. But we as parents didn't care about anything other than the stage that we're at and the next stage that's in front of us. Right. So let's take that concept that we can actually map out early stage attributes that lead to those lagging indicators of health. And we can translate that into how we approach maximizing lifetime value from a customer standpoint, particularly in sales. So you take the long view, 
really personify who are our most valuable customers, not the people who bring us the most revenue, the people who create the most profit and value. And mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing in this because that's at the bottom of the funnel and you want to actually reverse engineer and go up the funnel so that you can understand what those people look like when they presented at the very beginning mm-hmm. so that you can start to focus all of your energy around that. That's the executive level conversation. Yep. The sales manager conversation takes that one year, five year, 10 year and breaks that down all the way into what I call 90 day increments. And so for the account executive, they just need to know what the next 90 days looks like. And I'm a big fan of the 12 week year process. A book about it. I really modified that as a way to drive teams because I help each team pre-decide what needs to happen in the next 90 days. We take those 90 day outcomes and we look at monthly objectives, weekly initiatives, and then daily tasks. And so that way we know every five to seven days, are you on track or off track? Every month, are you on track or off track? Every six weeks, we can intervene and make a change and a pivot so that you actually have the time every 90 days or four of those within every fiscal year. So it's appropriate to size the view of that lifetime value to the role that you play within the organization. Mm-hmm. But if it starts at the top and it really becomes derivative measures as you go down, you create symmetry across the organization. And that's how you as an executive know that efforts that your account executives are producing every single day are actually contributing to lifetime value. And I think the marketplace is demanding that. Mm-hmm. The idea that in, in my mind, supply chain and the availability of resources and technology and data is ubiquitous. The only reason someone's buying from your organization or my organization and not somebody else is because of us and the relational equity that we have. That's why I think that the only really true competitive advantage that any organization has are its people. And so our ability to connect one-on-one is our ability to project confidence in the age of empathy, trust is the currency. And so to project that connection and say, you can trust me to help you achieve what's most important by my product, service, widget, whatever. And so I think it's a both and. What we end up doing is we end up saying lifetime value is most important, but we have no way of connecting what that is. We have no way of quantifying it in most organizations. But once you quantify, we have no way of connecting that down through the organization. So every single individual, whether you're on the revenue producing side or on the operational side, can understand how the work that they do and their ability to be productive and efficient actually contributes to that corporate measure. Yeah, you bring up a good point there about the relational equity. Never heard it put that way, but I like when we were at HubSpot, they talked a lot about it. It's how you sell. It's not what you sell. And that we are all humans and that our our true differentiator as companies and as organizations are who's on the team. Like, who do you have? Who's on this team versus that team? It makes all the difference in things like sports and just experiences. Like you said, at Starbucks, you could go to two different Starbucks and have vastly different experiences based on who's working that day and what are they bringing to the table. If I am an executive and I'm wanting to build out a sales team that is making a difference and that team has relational equity, what should I be looking for? How can I build a team that makes a difference so that I can stand out against my competitors? Yeah, I think it all comes down to uh, the scorecard. Mm-hmm. And if, if you want to change behavior, you got to change the scorecard. And that scorecard means different things to different people. I still think that if, if we're asking people to help others 
be successful. We need to help them understand what that means because very often we say that and then our scorecard is help you be successful or help my organization be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, it's a really, it's a delicate balance because it, it can be mutually beneficial and it should be mutually beneficial. And that has to be represented in the prospecting process, in the qualification process and the solution design process, all of that. One of the things that I've learned over the years as an early sales rep, gosh, I just wanted to get the deal. And I never quite understood that even when you tried to force a deal to happen, it always costs you on the back end. It costs you on retention. It costs you on time. It costs you on energy. It costs you from a testimonial or a reference. There was a cost to that on the backside of it. So software, custom software from the beginning, there's also a cost internally from software development and support mm-hmm. and implementation because they're like, you didn't set appropriate expectations. So I learned really quick that it's better to walk away from a deal than to try to force it forward. Mm. And I think what's changed over the last 15 or so years is that the buyer is in complete control of the process now. They engage with you when they're ready to engage with you and you have to meet them on their terms. And so it's much more balanced and equitable in that ecosystem, which means that we have to engage with them. This is why I'm such a big fan of the challenger sale. I don't care if you're selling widgets or you're selling organizational development projects. You have to help them see the world in a different way. They don't need you for knowledge. They don't need you to tell them how great they are. They need you to either validate what they perceive to be true is true or challenge it. And if you challenge it, why is it different? And how is that difference going to lead them closer into their reality? So I find that if you really focus on that and exhibit that in your playbooks and then outline that out in how you score and your lead scoring strategy, how you prioritize, how people move through your pipeline and all of that, what you end up happening is you end up surfacing a clearer picture of your ICP based on service line. And then because of that, you're more efficient at identifying it, which means you're greater. When you're clear on who you're selling to, what their problem is and how you solve it, you have better leads, you close them faster, you have a higher ACV, and at the end of the day, you have happier customers. And that's what creates that thing that HubSpot talks a lot about. And we know from inbound selling, it creates where your sales team is now your clients. Mm-hmm. And they love you so much that they will share with anyone and everyone that has a similar problem, how you help them solve their problem. Yeah, you bring up the buyer being in in complete control, and I, I agree. And I'm a big proponent of challenger selling for the reasons you brought up, having the ability to change someone's worldview and challenge them versus just knowledge transfer and or you're so great. How important do you think having a methodology like challenger or any, there's a lot of different sales methods out there. They're all probably valid for one reason or another, but how important is it to enable the sales team with a methodology like that so they have some guardrails and guidelines as to how they can effectively move clients throughout their pipeline? I'm going to answer that both from the executive standpoint and from the sales standpoint. So from the executive standpoint, you really have to have a culture of learning, period. You have to believe that there is value and an emergent learning experience that's happening every single 90 days. And when you balance that with qualitative and quantitative aspects and dimensions, you begin to see that your client, your prospect, the marketplace is always shifting. We just have experienced an unbelievable amount of disruption. And I think that was like a big bang. So for these next nine, 10 years, it's going to be like the universe setting itself into motion, which means that our clients in the marketplace is going to be in constant motion. 
we're going to see more competition rise up. We're going to see we're going to see our buyers do things that we've never seen them before. We're going to see a new kind of sales rep emerge that is going to have much more interdependent, interdisciplinary. I think we're going to see the role of team selling, even in the mid-market and maybe even in the SMB place, be more important because you have more constituents at the table. You have more decision makers, you have more stakeholders because of the integrated technology approach that people are shooting from, in addition to the fact of how artificial intelligence is really pushing things. So yep. that starts with an executive view that says, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And there might be mature lines of business that are profitable, but they're plateaued that we need to think about how do we deprioritize and how do we constantly accelerate the things that are really promising and how do we introduce new things into market. So with that, when it becomes a culture, it has to be carried through the organization all the way to the people on the front line. And so I think we constantly, best salespeople are learners. And in fact, I'll never forget my first sales manager said, the worst thing you can do, Ben, is know too much about what you're selling, (laughs) no matter what it is. Because you move from generalist to specialist. And in the sales world, what that means is you stop asking questions and you start making assumptions. And then you never listen. I remember uh, Tom Peters talking about a, uh, the management guru talked about a research project that Harvard Business Review did on how long it took when a patient started describing their problem before a doctor interrupted them and offered a solution. And the average time is going to blow your mind. 18 seconds. 18 seconds. (laughs) Doctor walks in, sits down, listens to you in 18 seconds. Okay. I know exactly what this is. is, Right. That's what we do in sales. You know, somebody sits down, they start telling us their problem. Like I've seen this before. Oh, here's your problem. I got Um, it. I got it. Let me send you a quote. Sign the dang thing. We'll get started. Commission commission brand. (laughs) Oh man, I got a live one here. (laughs) That's exactly right. And it's like, no, 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 no. We got to slow down and we got to realize that we have to remain curious. We have to look at the person in every conversation as if it's brand new. And if we bring a lot of ourselves to that in our experience, it's great because it's going to make us ask better questions. But I always look for that in when I've been managing salespeople is that one of the ways that you can really exhibit a culture of learning is, are you asking more questions or are you stating more premise type conversation in your conversations with prospects? And those who ask the most questions move the prospects along that pipeline in a much faster way. So I think staying curious, always being a learner, and then always being just flat out curious about the person or interested in whatever it is that you're doing. So if you're selling software to you know conversational intelligence, you're really fascinated with just the world of conversational intelligence mm-hmm. because it's going to make you aware of what academia is doing. It's going to make you aware of what the competitive landscape is because you're genuinely interested in it. The best car salespeople on the planet absolutely love the brands that they represent. Yep. They know everything about the interior, the year models, the decades, the direction, the engine. They may not be experts in any of it, but they know enough to ask the questions and understand some of the methodology and that behind it. And I just see far too often we don't set our account executives up for success. Because we have promoted account executives, successful ones, into the management role mm-hmm. without helping them cross that great divide, they repeat exactly how they perceive what's happened, which is I'm going to throw you in the wolves. And if you survive, fantastic. And how do you survive when you don't know what to do? You just try to kill everything you can. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that's just... 
as quickly as quickly as you can. Yeah, yeah, as quickly as you <laughs> by can. interrupting and by <laughs> by right. giving the giving the solution before you even understand the problem. So that is exactly right. The other example I have with that, there's a book that's it's aging now. It's called How Google Works, mm-hmm. and I thought this is fascinating because they look for somebody that they call a smart creative. This is Google, one of the most profound software engineering companies in the world that has made a substantial impact. And what they are saying is the people that they want at Google, they're smart, but they're creative. They're not, they're generalists, they're not specialists. Mm -hmm. And what it goes on to explain is why that's true. Because a specialist has already made up their mind what they think it needs to be and how it needs to work. And Google is 100% committed to the emergent learning process. And I think that's what we have to be in the sales world as well. And at the executive level too. I agree with this idea of generalists. And it sounds like, does this idea you brought up team selling versus this all being on this one AE trying to figure it out on their own, does team selling solve for some of this, Ben? Do you think that'll help? I do think so. Sometimes the team is what presents to the client and depending on the sales environment, that you're in and what you're selling and the size of that deal, you may bring more people into the sales process. But sometimes it is about getting the right people internally around the table Mm. to solve that problem. So you might have business requirements that are part of it. You might have a great understanding and you might pull a developer, you might pull a support staff, you might pull a solutions designer in and just say, okay, I'll buy pizza. We're going to spend the next 50 minutes and we're going to talk through this. What do I need to ask? What am I missing? What's not here? What do we have that I'm not aware of? Do you like this? Uh, How I've organized it? All of those kinds of things that contribute to it. And what you're doing is you're asking people within the organization to reveal potential blind spots, but also to help you connect the dots in some ways that are doing it. Because when we're selling, particularly when we're selling integrated solutions, and even if we're selling a best-in-class solution, it's going to integrate somewhere, which means that you have a business user you have a systems analyst and you have somebody in IT, a systems administrator that's at minimum going to be involved. You also have the CFO or accounting, whoever the accounting leader is, and maybe even the president side of the size of the organization, and depending on the tool that's going to be involved in the process. You have to understand what each role wants, but there's going to be a team approach to their decision. We should bring a team approach to helping them move through that consideration and buying stage too. Yeah. Ben, fantastic conversation. How can my listeners find you online? They want to learn more about you. They can connect to velocitystrategysolutions.com. You can uh, sign up for my newsletter at thevelocityfactor.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, very active there. And then on Twitter, it's at Ben underscore Strout. Awesome. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes. If anybody wants those links, just head over to our site. Ben, thanks so much for joining. Great conversation. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. You can find all the links discussed and the show notes at thesaleslift.com. That's the, T-H-E, sales, S-A-L-E-S, lift, L-I-F-T, dot com. Have questions for me? Email me at tyler at thesaleslift.com. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And we hope today's show brings you the sales lift your business needs. Remember, ideas plus action equals results. You've got new ideas, now it's time to take action and the results will follow. See you next time.